What are the future trends that are sneaking up on us rapidly? Beasley Media Group Vice President of Programming Buzz Knight interviews thought leaders of today on new innovations, new methods, new strategies, and new thinking. On this podcast, Healthy Paranoia. Our Healthy Paranoia podcast to date has focused on new thinking and the trends surrounding us in technology. But on this edition, we start a series of podcasts on leadership and some of the most striking and impactful examples in our history. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of multiple books, capturing the beautiful essence of many of our presidents, from Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR to LBJ in stunning and vivid detail. Her experiences working for President Lyndon Johnson shaped her passion and brilliance as a historian, and her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, focuses on the four presidents in an examination about their growth and development of leadership. Welcome back, Doris, for this episode where we celebrate your new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, and we celebrate the unbelievable traits of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. All of the leaders in the book are tremendously resilient, and obviously this is an amazing dynamic for FDR, isn't it? Resilience? Oh, resilience really, in a certain sense, exemplifies FDR. It is an important quality in all the leaders. They all went through really tough adversity situations and came through stronger as a result. And leadership studies seem to suggest that's a common trait among a lot of great leaders. But for FDR to have gotten the polio attack when he was still in his 30s, having loved to run in the woods and swim in the water and take long hikes and play tennis and golf, it was it was a, obviously a, a, a terrible experience for him to wake up one morning, feel not so great, and then go out swimming and hiking and then come back that night and feel so tired that he couldn't even take off his bathing suit and goes upstairs to sleep and can never walk on his own power again. And they knew so little about polio then. They weren't even sure what it was at the beginning. But it meant that years of striving would follow him. He was determined that he would somehow try to walk on his own power. He didn't think he could ever go back in public life. He'd already been a state senator. He'd already been assistant secretary of the Navy. He'd been a vice presidential candidate in 1920. So he was really looking forward to a full political life. And once this struck, he had three years before he even appeared in public again. And all during that time, he was just trying to strengthen his body. He was told that the lower parts of his body may not ever come back. But if he could strengthen the upper part of his body, then at least he could get out of the wheelchair on his own, move from a wheelchair into a bed. So he would ask to be put from the wheelchair onto the floor so that he could crawl on the floor of his library and strengthen his upper back. And then he would go up the stairs one at a time with crawling up the stairs pulling himself up as if he were just hoisting himself. And by the time he reached the top, he would have a great celebration. That was the great thing about FDR. He never lost his optimistic temperament. I mean, for a while, there was a serious depression after he got the polio. But once he saw that he could do little things, he could get to the top of the stairs, they would have a triumph. And he later said when he was in the presidency that if you spent two years trying to move your big toe, none of these pressures are going to get to you. <laughs> That's what resilience does. But early on, before he was he got ill, when he was much younger, he wasn't really tremendously motivated, was he? That's what's interesting. Not all people who become leaders come to it at the same time. And when he was young, he went to Groton, he went to Harvard, he went to Columbia Law School, and there was no sign of an exceptional student, no sign of a really 
exceptionally ambitious person. And even in the law firm, the partners thought he wasn't even doing a great job as a law clerk. And then chance intervenes for him, as it did for Theodore Roosevelt. The Democratic boss comes to him and said, there's an open seat, a Democratic seat in Dutchess County, and we think you'd be fine for the seat. And it has nothing to do with what he's done, but it has to do with the fact his mother's wealthy and could support the campaign, but also the Roosevelt name, because Teddy Roosevelt had been so popular that they thought maybe he would, as a Democrat, have Republicans and Democrats who would vote for him. The minute he got out on that campaign trail, barnstorming, talking to people, he found that this is what he was meant to do. And he was great at it. He was so natural. People would come up to him and he would say, tell me about your life. He listened. He wanted to hear. He was so privileged, so insulated, that this for him was like learning a whole new world of how other people lived besides his little kingdom. He was like a Downton Abbey little kingdom. <laughs> but his the optimism, going back to, to that uh, uh, aspect of leadership, was that always part of his, his temperament? I think so. I think optimism may be a gift that you're given as a child, that you grow up either looking at the world in that way or possibly looking at it in a more melancholy way. And then events can change things and can turn you one way or the other. And he went through a lot of difficult events. His father died. His mother was somewhat overbearing, even though so loving of him. But he never really lost that optimism. And, of course, when he becomes president, the ability to project that optimism onto a badly frightened nature in that first inaugural address proves absolutely instrumental to the beginning of his leadership as president. And um, how did he campaign, you know, for office? What was his his mode there? Was it really just, just getting out to learn and listen, as you said earlier? I think what he did was just to work harder than everybody else, too. I mean, that's a key for all of the four people I studied, that what Teddy Roosevelt said is that the best leaders or the best people who are successful develop ordinary qualities to an extraordinary degree through the application of hard, sustained work. He thought some people are born with genius qualities, but most people are not, and they develop qualities. And FDR was so natural with people. He loved talking to them. He had to learn how to communicate. I mean, in the beginning, Eleanor was with him in his first campaign, and she said when he started talking, he would sometimes stop. He wasn't sure what he was going to say next, and there'd be these huge pauses, and they were afraid he'd never go on. And then by the end of the campaign, he was talking so long, like two hours, they had to drag him off the stage. <laughs> so these, this is important, I think, for young people to realize that they don't emerge full-blown with all the qualities that they later have when they're on Mount Rushmore or they're in a monument in Washington, that they struggle to learn how to communicate, how to deal with, you know, with loss, how to deal with failure, how to deal with a team. All of those things they don't know naturally. It has to develop in them. So as he always sought to improve his, his health, um, talk about how he developed this, this trial and error skill that became a great part of his leadership. Yeah, it's interesting that the fact that when he was trying to figure out ways to walk again, he would come to any number of new techniques that were out there. You know, he'd get them to the house, whether it was some particular kind of medicine you could take or some kind of lotion. He was just always experimenting with what could be done. And in fact, the experimentation that really worked was when he went to Warm Springs, and the hot waters allowed him and any of his polio victims to float, and, and then they could exercise in the water in a way that they couldn't on land. And then, of course, he creates that rehabilitation center, and that's where his true leadership qualities developed, I think, because he was able to give joy and a sense of life back to the fellow polios, as they called them, 
they would have dances in their water in their wheelchairs they'd have poker games they would play all sorts of games in the pool and they could have a life again and he taught them that and that's what i think developed into him but then experimenting with that then when he gets into the presidency the new deal is so new the problems it has to deal with overwhelming unemployment what do you do about it that he tried various programs and if they didn't work he said all i'm looking for is the high batting average for my team and for myself and i'll just try something else i'll experiment above all experiment he said and it turned out to be exactly the right thing and you also define define his skill as a turnaround leadership and when you, the story of what he accomplished in in the first hundred days is absolutely mind-boggling it really is i mean when he took office that first day banks all over the country were collapsing and people were standing in long lines to take their money out of the banks and violence was beginning to take forth in the cities and so what he does that very first day he calls what he calls a bank holiday <laughs> that for an entire week all the banks will be closed and then he has to get a law passed that week that will shore up the weaker banks and will know which banks have enough money they just some of them had given their money into the stock market to depositors money and that was the problem but others were strong but they just couldn't keep up with the demand so then he goes on a fireside chat in front of the people on a Sunday night when they're going to reopen the banks on Monday, and he has to persuade them that it's good to keep your money in the bank. So he tells them the story of how deposits work. You know, when you put your money in the bank, it doesn't mean that it just sits in a vault. They invest it in loans and mortgages to keep the economy moving. Some of them invested it badly in the stock market, and they've lost it, but others still have assets. And I promise you that we've worked this out the, get, the government's getting involved, that it's safer for you to put it there, back in, back in the bank rather than under your mattress. So the next day, huge lines again at the banks, and they worry, are they coming now to take it out because the week is over? They were coming to bring their money back. And that gave him the foundation to go forward and then make systemic reforms in the country. He had to change the banking system, the stock market system, the whole government relationship to the people, um, the TVA. I mean, there was so much that happened in that 100 days. It's, it's mind-boggling. And there's there's so much thinking about how he approached all these major challenges, so I'll, I'll give you some of these statements there to re react to. First of all, lead by example. What he understood, really, was that his morale and his confidence would be really important to his team members. So, example, his labor secretary, Frances Perkins, said she would go into his office and she'd be feeling like, I can't do this job, it's too big for me. And then he would somehow set her mind at ease, of course you can do it. If I can do this, you can do that. And she said, I go out feeling I'm fine. That was the example that he set to people, that confidence and that working hard and that morale building. Uh, bring all stakeholders aboard. Yeah, even when he was doing the bank legislation during that week, he made sure to bring the bankers abroad, aboard, even though people thought, why are you bringing them in? They're the cause of the problem. He said, well, they're going to have to be the solution as well as the problem. And he brought governors in. He brought mayors in. I mean, he just understood that you have to have as many people who are going to be affected by this decision in your, in, your, in your place as much as you can so you can understand how it will take place. Uh, another one, strike the right balance of realism and optimism. Right from his first inaugural, he understood right at the start, he said, you know, I cannot pretend that things aren't terrible. These are really bad times. He couldn't just go out there with an optimistic, sunny program and say things are fine, but he said... We were overdoing the fear. He didn't say it this way. He said it much better. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And he meant that there had developed this fever in the country, in a sense, that people didn't think we were going to be able to get out of the trouble we were in. 
and he assured them somehow that there was a way out, that government had a, would have a new relationship with the people, that government would work to get jobs, that government would work to change the stock market so this didn't happen again, and that the banks would be safe. And that combination of realism and belief in the future is what really worked, not only in the inaugural, but in the 100 days. Uh, restore confidence to the spirit and morale of the people. The most important thing Franklin Roosevelt felt during his entire presidency was that what mattered most was the bond that he could develop with the people so that the people could feel trust in his leadership and trust in themselves. So he felt that what he had to do was to convince the individuals in the country it wasn't their fault that they'd lost their jobs. That was the problem. A lot of people didn't understand the whole economic system, had screwed up, and they felt there's something wrong with me, that I don't have a job. And he told them that's not true. It's the system that's at problem. And you haven't done anything wrong. And we're going to make sure that you get a chance to have a job again, even if it's one that we, the government, have to provide to you. So that was confidence that he gives to the people at large, which is much more important even than what he has himself. He projects it onto them. And the way he communicated with the country was pretty remarkable, wasn't it? Well, he develops two new techniques as soon as he becomes into the presidency. The first is a press conference without written questions ahead of time. Things were much more formal before FDR. But he announces, I want to have two press conferences a week, and you don't have to have written questions. You can ask me whatever you want. But then he developed some rules that, you know, if I'm going to be quoted, you have to check it with my press secretary. I'll give you some things on background, some things on deep background. If I ever see it again, I'll know that something's wrong. And they loved it. I mean, they clapped during the first press conference. And think of that in contrast to today, if you had two press conferences every single week. And then he develops fireside chats, which eventually become 30 fireside chats on the radio. And he had the perfect voice for the radio, this conversational tone. There's a story of a construction worker running home one night, and the partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president, he's coming into my living room to talk to me tonight. It's only right that I be there to greet him when he comes. And those fireside chats, which were speeches he worked on, draft after draft after draft, but they appear to be as if he's talking to the person. My friends, here I am. Lastly, what would you say was his greatest leadership strength? I think his greatest leadership strength was that he believed that the people themselves would rise to the occasion. And he developed a bond with the people both during the Depression and World War II where they not only went and accepted the challenges they faced, but they, they put their energies and lives into it. And they become you know, what's been called the greatest generation, both for getting through the Depression and for going through World War II. And when he dies, the interesting thing is that they discussed how people felt in little towns all across the country. They'd be holding on to each other's shoulders and saying to themselves, our friend, he's gone. You know, they felt toward him like he was their friend. He was on their side. And that's a great thing for a leader to to create. Our next episode, Doris, uh, will be focused on the one president you had some firsthand experience with, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. The great new book is called Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Thank you, Doris. You are welcome. Thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin for sharing her insights from her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, now available from Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to Healthy Paranoia with Buzz Knight. Steady production guidance provided by Boston Beasley Media Group's Mark Clark.